0: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Drum. A hint of fife. The ground vibrating. Now a large cannonball explodes. Then as if some great painter in the sky took the edge of his brush, carved into the foreground, a thin but deep red line. The drum persists, a reminder that this will be no ordinary day in the marsh, but one of great consequence. A bright brick red, like nothing that occurs in nature in these parts, is larger now. And while it can't be seen in great detail, it's clear it's something alive. They lie in wait, in ragged cotton, in coonskin, in Yankee blue. They hold on to their muskets, their squirrel guns. Behind them is the city of New Orleans. In front of them, a rampart of wood, cotton bale, and mud, and all the hopes of democracy. A quick perilous peek over the top. And the red mass is now clearly arms, legs, pointy bayonets, the drum, the strong intent, the empire with its eyes fixed. The soldiers of an army of Wellington that have just beat Napoleon wants to provide its first-class service to teach the Yankees a terrible lesson. Let there be no doubt, when they smack into the rampart, they will tear them up. They will poke holes until there is no resistance. They are the defenders. They are the country bumpkins, the city dwellers, creoles, dock workers, black, white, and tea, as their leader, Andrew Jackson, would call them. Freedmen, whites, pirates, really privateers who support America, never attack American shipping. and They provide to this fight great cannons right off their ships for the defense of their home country. Young Tennesseans and Kentucks who came way far from home. Right now, they can do nothing for maximum accuracy. And to save shot, they must wait. It is serious. The army that approaches them outnumbers the defenders two to one, maybe more. And they are trained. They've been drilled for years and they've fought on the continent. Well, the defenders, some of them, have just met each other. And if the chances of warfare work like they normally do in the early 19th century, the king's men will sweep this field and reduce this scattered bunch. Faced with the choice of bayonet or retreat, they will run. But today and here, that's not going to happen. But you knew that. The resolve. The back to the rampart, the tense hold on the musket, the spirit that says, You shall go this far and no farther. This mud wall is the border of the republic, a nation under God, and you are about to hear its message. I am not humbled by empire. I respond to no king. I stand in the stead of my father and my grandfather who cleared land and made a republic in the woods it's one thing to win independence another to keep it and that's what i'll be tested on now i'm about to answer you old enemy of mine my scottish forebears may have fought you on some ancient field and here we go again what you mistake for silence what you mistake for a break in my resolve is just me waiting to make sure my squirrel gun gives you the proper shot A second more, the sword falls, the officer howls, and the United States of America answers. And that shot is their one chance. Their volley must be enough ballistic force to take the stuffing out of the advance. If it is not, All the advantage of being behind a mud wall is gone. All of their hard work assembling is gone. They lose their cannons. It goes to the sword, the rifle butt, the pistol and the fist. A feudal melee. One that's usually decided with numbers, and then the army of redcoats will cut through them. Seize the city. Now we have a British Louisiana. Now we have a cutoff to the American West. An end, perhaps, to the dream of very different history, and there's too much talk, too much talk about how this battle that would be fought just about two hundred years ago, the Battle of New Orleans was pointless because of the lack of modern communication. Battle need not be fought, it said. There was a treaty that was signed. Oh indeed. The British had signed a treaty. The treaty was not ratified by the Senate. It could have been easily unenforced, and it's not likely, that in hold of the major economic power, the end of the mighty river, the commercial city of the North American continent, that the British would have given it up over a piece of paper, at least not without major concessions. Forget all you've been told. Even the revisionist history that, This battle was important because it was a feel-good thing. Oh, no. Not a man on that field on that day thought it was anything else. When you know how important it was, that moment, when you know the feeling, then you can see why it changed the nation. You can imagine why a presidential career, a party that still exists today, was practically built from that rampart. And you can sense how if anyone there in those ranks, anyone who even heard about this major battle, learned that there was a meeting where some group of lawyers were thinking of giving up, perhaps handing things over to the British or at least stopping the fighting. Oh no, if you heard that somewhere north that was going on, you'd be so angry that it could change politics forever it almost did. Most Americans can't say they know what it's like to have an enemy army and navy at the edge of their town. And one day, that army might be upon them. 200 years ago, this is what was going on in New Orleans. Laura Florian is a New Orleans woman. And she's writing to her friend, who is living in New Jersey. Her friend is Lydia Roosevelt. Yes, she is the great aunt of Teddy Roosevelt. The letter survives, so we know some of the tensions of that day. What a moment this is, my sweetest Miss Roosevelt, for your distant friends, an enemy seeking admission to our gates, and throw peaceable citizens. We are still in ignorance of the number of invaders. Some say they have 7,000, some say 10,000, and some more. This town is tranquil and quiet, as if inhabited by specters and shades instead of men." She writes of how the British easily conquered the initial defenses, the the few boats that were defending the outskirts of New Orleans, that either Spanish settlers or local fishermen were bribed to lead the Redcoats from the path between the Gulf and New Orleans. General Jackson is summoned down to New Orleans to defend the city, and he arrives with his Tennessee and Kentucky units. Now, there's a couple of things that are going to aid the defenders of the city here. One is that Jackson, faced with the indignity of foreign troops on American soil, British troops, refuses to grant them territory. He does a night attack on the British camp. It's night fighting. It's very difficult. There's at least 200... 50 American casualties and about the same, maybe a little bit more British, but it throws them off. I don't want to say you're going to easily scare the armies of Wellington flush from victory. Napoleon now bringing a lot of force on the American continent in three ways. They have attacked the city of Washington, which we know about setting it on fire and then being stopped at Baltimore. They have attacked through the north and now they're attacking one of America's most important commercial cities. So it doesn't stop the British invasion, of course, but it does throw them off a bit. Maybe throws their coordination off, and they lose some men and officers. Secondly, what's supposed to have happened in the Battle of New Orleans, according to the British war plan, is that the British were going to attack across the river. They were going to put artillery. So as their infantry is attacking, they're supported by cannons falling on the American, disorienting them. That artillery brigade and the infantry to support that positioning can't arrive in time to help the infantry. They're badly coordinated. They judged his force to be inferior. They can overrun them. As the British approached the Jackson Line, here is from an American eyewitness. Colonel Smiley from Bardstown was the first who gave us orders to fire on our part of the line, and then I reckon there was a pretty considerable noise. Directly after the firing began, Captain Patterson, I think he was from Knox County, Kentucky, but an Irishman born, came running along. He jumped on the breastwork, and stooping for a moment to look through the darkness as well as he could, he shouted, Shoot low, boys! Shoot low! Rake them! Rake em. They're coming on all their fours! The fire that they unleashed would be devastating, as seen from a British officer, George Gillig. That the Americans were excellent marksmen, we've had frequent cause to acknowledge. Scarcely a ball passed over, or fell short of its mark, but all striking full into the midst of our ranks. The shrieks of the wounded, the crash of the firelocks, and the fall of such as were killed caused confusion, and what added to it was that the houses that we stood beside burst into flames suddenly. The Americans, having expected our attack, had filled them with combustibles, and then directed guns in an instant. The smoke blinded us. Here's the description to Lydia Roosevelt. Yesterday was the witness to the next and last engagement. To describe the incessant and tremendous roar of cannon and musketry which we were awoke before dawn would be impossible. Imagine claps of thunder, while the echo prolongs to sound undyingly. Or rather fancy the grating of an immense wheel. But no, I cannot convey to you the idea in which it can in the smallest degree give an accurate conception of the sound which our ears were assailed. The carnage was indeed terrible. The enemy advancing on the plain were cut off by the dozens. The result from another American eyewitness. When the smoke had cleared away and we could obtain a fair view of the field, it looked at the first glance like a sea of blood. It was not blood itself which gave it this appearance, but the red coach in which the British soldiers were dressed. And again, our British officer from the aftermath. Prompted by curiosity, I mounted my horse and rode to the front. Within the narrow compass of a few hundred yards were gathered together nearly a thousand bodies. Not a single American was among them. They were all English. Nor was this all. An American officer was smoking a cigar and counting them, and repeating over and over that their dead amounted to only eight killed and fourteen wounded. And finally, to Lydia Roosevelt, the Tennesseans particularly have inspired the Creoles and indeed all the inhabitants here with such an idea of their valor that I believe we'll long live in their memory. Patriotic thoughts like that filled the newspapers of the country, filled the conversations that were going on in the streets after Jackson's battle. And the politics were known, if you were a Federalist, in the wake of New Orleans, it was almost treason. The party had opposed the war. Some had gone even farther, and they were persona non grata. Rufus King runs in 1816. It's not even really a campaign. He wins three states. What happened to the party? Well, they set themselves up in a meeting behind closed doors. Right at the time that the capital, Washington, D.C., is under attack. Right at the time that the British have all of the harbors, including Boston, blocked. The result of a war that most of that region didn't want. The Massachusetts governor is Caleb Strong. Federalist politics are strong here. In fact, he wins his re-election opposing the War of 1812. And he decides to call together a convention to decide what to do here. Massachusetts. Vermont, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island send delegates. But delegates from other states are not welcome, and no one from the federal government is allowed in. This is New England deciding what they're going to do about the war. A region perhaps dictating foreign policy. But the aforementioned states send delegates to the Hartford Courthouse, December 1814. The convention meets for a month. President Madison sends an agent to try to get into the courthouse, maybe pretending to be a recruiter. He wants to get some information. The agent is not allowed in. He gets no reports. Madison tells the governor of New York to prepare the militia just in case. The silence increases the tension all over the country. A cartoon that is widely circulated shows Harrison Otis, one of the leading Federalists, and Timothy Pickery, another one coming pretty close to leaping off a cliff, and who's at the bottom of that cliff waiting for them? Why, it's King George III, still monarch at this time. And he's saying, oh, my Yankee boy Otis, jump into my arms, plenty molasses, codfish to smuggle. And he's offering honors, titles, nobility. This is the way the rest of the nation was seeing what was going on in Hartford. And the reality is that Otis was a moderate Federalist and he shepherded through a moderate document. There might have been some discussion of secession at the conference, perhaps, no one knows. But nothing came out in that document. They offered no plan of breakup or secession or dealing with the British. They did argue for several constitutional amendments that they wanted. Now, New England thought with this Hartford Conference that they had a voice, that the nation was going to listen to them. They argued against conscription. They argued against the federal government imposing embargoes. Embargoes were very unpopular in New England, which depended on shipping. If you want a new state in the nation, you need two-thirds of Congress. They wanted to block new states that might become slave states. And they wanted to eliminate the three-fifths clause in the Constitution. They wanted to limit the southern power in the nation. Delegates didn't say anything about leaving the Union or dealing with the British, but they didn't forswear it in the document. In any case, having the meeting at all raised a lot of suspicions. The Hartford document, though, is popular in the New England region, and Caleb, uh, the governor, Caleb Strong sends a delegation to Washington with this great news that we have this moderate document of suggestions we'd like you to consider. President Madison provides no invitation to the delegates when they arrive. And there's some bad timing because one day after the Hartford delegates arrive, the news of the Battle of New Orleans reaches Washington and now nobody wants to talk to those delegates. Two of the commissioners go to see Madison. Without an invitation, Harrison Otis refuses. The Federalist Party in America, the party that had been first in power in three elections, are now broken. Though they retained power in Massachusetts until 1823, everywhere else they were seen as the blue lights who helped the British ships find the coast. They were lumped in with these kinds of traitors. It was Joseph Story, a New England Republican, who said, The Battle of New Orleans was a glorious opportunity for Republicans to place themselves in permanent power. There would never be a Federalist president again. The party was destroyed. But something starts to happen that's interesting. After a war, President Madison saw how bad the roads were, bad the canals were, how hard it was to defend the nation. In fact, there's a shipment of guns that's supposed to get down to New Orleans, and it's tied up in St. Louis, can't even reach General Jackson in time. That's the state of the nation. He wants to do something about it. He wants national funds for canals, for roads, for internal improvements in the nation, but something else. Although James Madison had been at the height of opposition to the bank proposed by his former political rival, Alexander Hamilton, the Bank of the United States, he reinstates it during his presidency. It was needed to finance the war. Now, there's some criticism, not so much from politicians in Washington, but from around the country writers comparing him to an apostate saying he's a quasi-federalist now. But it doesn't end with Madison. It's not just him. His successor, James Monroe, also seeks to eliminate party distinctions whatsoever. We're all one now. We don't need parties anymore. He tours the country ostensibly to review the coastal forts. But everyone knows it's just like George Washington did. The nation's unified now, and the president is visiting everyone. He visits John Adams in Massachusetts, and is extremely well received. It's called, in history books at least, The Era of Good Feelings, because the two-party bickering had stopped. But I think a better description perhaps comes from Sean Wilentz, historian, who says, There was four years of good feelings, followed by an era of extremely bad feelings and partisan bickering. And that's sort of what happens, because by 1820, 1821, you're starting to see debates over slavery. You're starting to see debates over the amount of money being spent. You're seeing little political fights between even people of the same party, like Henry Clay and President Monroe. Andrew Jackson starts to get uppity with his fame, and he wants to invade Florida. They got to restrain him. And you end up. With a fantastic partisan battle in 1824, mostly between Andrew Jackson and the Secretary of State under Monroe, John Quincy Adams, which really resembles the Federalist fight, even though everyone's calling themselves Republicans at this point. By 1828, you've got two parties at each other's throats. The player darts forward through two bulky, uniformed, and plastic-clad men. Through a gap where he can see a green field with bold, white lines. His objective is to cross each one of them. Each marks ten yards. To some, it looked like a gridiron, hence the name for the sport. Just barely, the player keeps his balance and holds an oblong ball, but he grips it as he's been trained, helmet-strapped, eyes on the line, he keeps his balance, and he crosses the final line into his opponent's end zone to the cheers of the home crowd in the arena. And if you are like a good number of Americans, you cheer at this moment too. The touchdown. And although it's a sport, there can be no doubt about what you're cheering for. The invasion of space. The conquering of an opponent. It's not war, but it resembles it. Football, the American variety of football, is a very old game, though not as old as some other American sports. Its roots are in rugby, association football known as soccer, handball, mob football, which was a kind of informal college game. Crowds didn't have players, per se, would try to move the ball to their side. The American colleges, Princeton, Columbia, Rutgers, Yale, met in 1873 to establish rules for their game. Get it away from this mobness. It's a very different game from what we know today. There are 15 players, for instance, which means eight more men on the field than what we see in today's game. A lot of the point of the game at this time in 1873 is kicking the ball into the goal where today's game, that's just a small amount. The essence of a touchdown is to get a chance to kick the ball, where today, but what you really want is the touchdown itself. Throwing the ball forward to another player, that wouldn't be allowed. It's the coach of Yale, Walter Camp, who is generally credited for the rules that are close to what we know today. His It creates downs, a limited amount of chances for one side to have the ball and to try to gain a certain amount of yardage, or they must give it up to the other team. First, it's five yards that the team needs to gain, and then there's a change to 10 to make it a little harder. And by 1912, as Wilson, Taft, and Teddy Roosevelt are battling for the presidency, you can now throw a ball forward to another player. Why are they doing all this? It's to make the game of football exciting. And it is. And by 1922, a professional football league, the National Football League, is established. It's popular. Well, why? Maybe because it's a little less about kicking a ball into a careful goal, about skill and dexterity and that stuff. Although there's still that element, but more about battle, war, invasion of space, capturing enemy territory. NFL films develop some of the best cinematography, the slow motion camera, multiple camera angles, the best in microphones to hear some of the sounds of the game. TV programs featuring football develop some of the best graphics in television history. Not surprisingly, politics has picked up some of that flashy presentation, and some of the TV political shows have the trappings. Anchors kind of use a football presentation in a political program, especially blinking lights and the red-blue state scoreboards of recent times. But there's a more subtle inference that politics is like sports. The assumption that one side will win. Politics certainly can resemble a few aspects of sports few aspects of football, scrimmage, fumble, hard hitting, the occasional wild play, but it is not football. And your side will not win, no matter how much your talking head told you. Part three of lies my talking head told me is, your side is going to win. No, it probably won't. Well, at least not for very long. I mean, of course, in a single election, there's a winner and there's a loser, but that's one day in time and things move on. We have the same parties in the United States that were present in 1855. Despite many death predictions about both of those two parties, we still have them both. They've morphed. They've changed. They've wrapped themselves around issues in their desire to acquire new customers. They've changed as we've changed. There's been about as many Democrats as Republicans in the White House. There's almost just as much party control, the House of Representatives, between the two parties since 1855. There are dark periods for one party or the other that do appear looking at American history. Periods where one side just can't seem to win the White House. One side is just left at the gates of the Capitol and can't control it. Can't get the speaker's gavel or the keys to the Oval. And people complain that perhaps their party will never win. But these periods in American history don't last long, especially when considered in the scope of American adults' lifetime. Politics is not football. There is no clock. There is no end to the game. There can be scores at different points, but there is no final score. The audience is not just an audience, but there are consequences for the audience in a way that a sports game doesn't have. And finally, it's not clear that just one side wins. We're going to talk More about that. You want a score? The score, well, it's tied. 18-18, in a manner of speaking. Actually, the GOP leads, if we're going to be really strict. And what am I talking about? The amount of people who have ever been president of the United States in history. GOP presidents. Lincoln, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Harrison, McKinley, T.R., Taft. Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Eisenhower, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Bush Sr. and Bush Jr. That's 18 men. Democrats, 14, strictly speaking. Jackson, Van Buren, Polk, Pierce, Buchanan, Cleveland, Wilson, FDR, Truman, Kennedy, LBJ, Carter, Clinton, and Obama, 14. But we can get it up to 17 if you include Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe as Democrats, even though they weren't directly in lineage to the Jacksonian party even though they called themselves Republicans or sometimes Democrat Republicans. It's often linked. The Democratic Party is often called Party of Jefferson. That brings you up to 17. And if you throw in Andrew Johnson, who ran actually for vice president in 1864 on the union ticket, but acted like a Democrat, considered himself a Democrat once he came to office after Lincoln's assassination and tried to seek the nomination of the Democratic Party in 1868. Almost got it. You count him. As a Democrat as well, you get 18 presidents. So the score is 18-18. And of course, there are four Whigs, two Federalists, and John Quincy Adams. Even if we are strict and we say 18 to 15, it's pretty tied between the two parties in history, especially when you consider that FDR had the four terms. Thomas B. Reed discovered that he could do something that had eluded many of the people that came before him. He could run the American government, especially that legislative branch which in the Gilded Age had come to be seen as inefficient, ineffective, feeble. Two hundred and fifty pounds, six foot three, with a large forehead and mustache in the nineteenth century style, Reed had a large, Resonant voice, which no one wanted to be a target of. You're too big a fool to lead, he told a congressman, but you haven't got sense to follow. At the same time, those who got to know him personally liked him. He had a really good sense of humor, if it wasn't aimed at you. But they'd see another side of him if they weren't doing what he wanted, especially if they were obstructing the business of the house. In modern times, the Congress had to get something done. That's how he felt. A Republican from Maine, Reed became speaker when Benjamin Harrison was inaugurated president in 1889. His fame was propelled when the Democrats in the house tried to block a procedural vote by leaving the chamber, denying quorum. Reed does something different. He orders the sergeant-at-arms to have the doors to Congress locked shut, and then he goes on with the vote. It is the duty of the Speaker to be sure that a factious minority does not prevent the House from doing its duty, he says. It's too much for some. For the first time, Congress spends a billion dollars. Woo! His answer? It's a billion-dollar country. He passes a tariff, and the Sherman Antitrust Act, He demonstrates his power, but it also earns him a reputation, good and bad, depending on what side you're on. A cartoon at the time shows him as an expert bowler, but what he's bowling with his bowling balls is his opposition Democratic House leaders. They are pins, and they are scattered by the large ball. He'd earned the name Tyrant, and he'd earned the moniker Czar Reed, a name that stuck. Yet, the first backlash to these type of tactics was fast. Benjamin Harrison, like most first-term presidents, suffered a bad first midterm in 1890. Democrats became the majority again and took the gavel from Reed, and I'm sure it was a giddy ceremony. Reed was reduced to minority leader. Yet, the Democrats couldn't celebrate long. After four years of holding the speakership, Their president, now Grover Cleveland, had a bad midterm. Reed, leading his party to the charge, became one of so many American politicians to predict the death of his opponents. The Democratic mortality will be so great next fall that their dead will be buried in the trenches and marked unknown. And Republicans were back in 1895. As for the first time, electric lights are installed in Congress. First, in the cloakrooms then in both chamber ceilings reed instituted another new technology this time a political one a whip the whip in the house would keep track of members votes before they came up and transmit that information to the speaker most devastating for the small d democrats in the house was reed's decision to hold up bills that he disfavored over in the senate a populist senator complained we have a horrid nightmare in the other side of this building one man transacts the business of 357 yet on some issues reed couldn't control everything when his members were eager to support war with spain reed is opposed to this he did everything he can using his new powers to block motion for the acquisition of gunpowder for bills that merely protest Spain's actions in, in Cuba. Without consulting him, his appropriations chair, part of his machine in the House, Joe Cannon, working with the minority Democrats, passed a gunpowder resolution providing gunpowder to Cuban insurgents. There's also a bill to annex Hawaii that this new coalition passes without Reed's support. He also opposes it. Four years after his second whirlwind term as Speaker starts, Reed was seen as a broken man, and he resigns. The machine he created, in a sense, continues after a little bit. After four years of having a caretaker speaker of running the Republican business in the House, the former appropriations chair, Joe Cannon, would take over in 1903. Cannon appeared to be the opposite of Reed. There's no bluster with Cannon. He's a simple Indiana man who had moved to Illinois, supported Abraham Lincoln, worked for the state, got elected to Congress. He's a smaller man, with a gray beard, a top hat, and the ever-present cigar. He's called Uncle Joe, and he loves the house, and he supports the members. I believe in consulting the boys, finding out what most of them want, and then doing it. It was folksy, friendly, largely false. Cannon would consult the boys, Cannon would defend the house, but he controlled everything with an iron fist, and decisions went through him first. But he was always couched in a smile. As one progressive congressman said, George Norris, Nebraska, members knew that they would be pleading on bended knee before the speaker for favors. He had in his hand the political life of every member of the House. Right as we have this speaker, who has exceeded and perfected the scientific control of a legislative body that Reed had developed. Theodore Roosevelt is president. In his first year of taking over from McKinley, he's got a caretaker speaker to deal with, Henderson, not a very strong-willed person. He can pass some legislation. Now in 1903, he's got cannon, tries to work with him. The speaker didn't really like Roosevelt, didn't like the progressive politics that he was turning to hated reform of any kind. Roosevelt and the new Speaker do meet several times a week. Most of the proposals are killed in legislative committees or in Speaker's rulings. The Speaker can make a rule whether a bill is going to be heard or how it's going to be decided. And then the entire House has to vote to overrule him. And nobody was doing that with Uncle Joe. At one point, President Roosevelt sends a message to the House. This is in 1908. It's not received at all. Chamber doors are locked when the president's message arrives. Even Theodore Roosevelt couldn't get through canon. A new word comes to describe what he's doing with Congress. Canonism. And there's only some bills that can even get through during Roosevelt's presidency that he's pushing like the Food and Drug Act. You needed great publicity, and there was so much publicity behind that act that even Joe Cannon couldn't bottle it up. His actions in the canonism was not popular. They so didn't like what Cannon was doing. There's reform attempts made, attempts to call bills out that couldn't clear committees because the leadership had blocked them. They're all curtailed. And he rules like this for seven years. But a crafty congressman, the aforementioned George Norris, had a plan. He had a piece of paper that he held in his jacket pocket for the right moment. It started to get torn, and the words started to fade on the paper he hadn't had the opportunity to use it, but he thought it was his secret weapon. 1910, his moment happens. Joe Cannons makes two mistakes. One is Canon, again, he would make these speakers' rulings. Uh, ostensibly they were just parliamentary rulings, but really they were designed to block legislation he didn't like, that uh, a census bill that he wanted had to be considered before any committee got a hold of it, had to go right to the floor of the House, because it's part of the Constitution that we do a census, so it's privileged, that's what the Speaker rules, couldn't be blocked by committee. This is George Norris's moment. He takes this crumpled piece of paper out and he raises to be heard by the speaker. Cannon probably should have have refused to hear him. Speakers have done this in the past, but he lets Norris speak. Okay, Norris says, well, the Constitution permits the House to make its own rules. That's in the Constitution. So I have a privileged moment as well. I would like, according to the Speaker's ruling, to make a privilege motion that we change the rules of the House. And of course, his rules involve changing the Rules Committee, limiting the Speaker's power, limiting the, the amount of people on the Rules Committee that's going to control where bills go, making that uh, the Speaker will be ined- ineligible to serve on the Rules Committee, changing the membership of the Rules Committee so that it's spread out according to geography and everyone gets representation, basically taking the Speaker's power away. It's a legislative moment canon loyalists realizes what's going on here with norris talking and he raises his hand point of order point of order canon of course hears him he says no 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 the, the norris's motion is not and we have to start talking it about it right now and refer it to the rules committee after 26 hours of debate the congressman from Pennsylvania, several Cannon loyalists, and then some of Norris' folks and his progressives, and then some of the Democrats who are in the House talking, debating back and forth. 26 hours. Joe Cannon, a speaker, makes a ruling that it be referred to the Rules Committee and, as he would always do, dares the House to overrule him. Cannon is not as popular anymore, you know. This is after he had blocked a lot of the popular bills that Roosevelt and the reforms that other people had tried to put forward. There's a lot of news coverage of what Cannon's doing. It's 1910, Taft is president now, not as popular anymore. Norris has a group of anti-Cannon Republicans, and he meets overnight with the Democrats who are in minority, but for the right issues, perhaps they could build a coalition. The Democrats and the progressive Republicans agree to work together, and by a vote of 182 to 162 the next day, the Speaker is overruled. This hasn't happened before, not under Reid, not under Joe Cannon. It's a shockwave. Now there's hours of more debate. There's jeering on both sides, but it's clear what's going on. The most powerful Speaker is losing his power, and the rules of the House are changed. The whole House now will elect the Rules Committee. The Speaker can't be on it, and the Speaker has much less say over what bills are going to move forward. These rules are voted 191 to 156, the final vote. A blow to Cannon. 43 Republicans crossing over and joining 150 Democrats to make it happen. He was, Cannon said, as dead as a doornail. Dead as last year's bird nest. Two years later, Cannon would lose his own congressional seat. For the first time in his career he'd gain it back later but never the speakership so one of the periods of the most stringent political control of the house the speakership of reed and cannon lasted in reality 16 years with a few breaks it was possible a man turning his age as a voter during speaker reed's rise would be 40 with cannons fall. It's a long time, but not in the scope of human memory. The Constitution specifies elections every two years, and this has had an effect of changing the House at least often enough. Party domination for even 16 years uninterrupted is rare. It has happened, though. The Republicans have done it three different times and the Democrats once. Of course, the Democrats have also had the largest stretch. We'll talk about that a bit since the establishment of the two parties in 1855. Control of the House is now just about even. The Democrats controlled the House 80 years since the establishment of these two major parties, and the Republicans 76. What really bolsters the Democrats' amount of years is that from 1954 to 1994, they held the House. That House control was the result of a coalition that didn't always agree didn't always reflect one ideology controlling the House. But it was a long period of control. It's also the only time that happened. Domination of American politics, where one party has everything, the President, the House, the Senate, it does happen. But there are usually enough interruptions. Since 1855, 46% of the time, almost half, at least one branch, was controlled by an opposition party. The opposition party to the president in the White House. So they had the House, they had the Senate, or they had both. Let's get real. There's something that you really want in your heart of hearts if you're the average American thinking about politics. You'd really want your opponents to go away. Like... If you were a conservative, you could just get rid of the demis and bring in some sensible government. If you could get rid of the insane semi-socialist ideas that flood our politics. And if government could be replaced by people who knew how to run a business. And of course, if you're a liberal, you'd like to be rid of anyone who thinks that publicly funded education isn't the most important goal. It doesn't matter who you are. You'd love to wipe the blogs clean of opposition, to clear your congressman's office of protesters, to stop the money flow to politicians from people who have different ideas. We all can agree on one thing. We'd all like to get rid of the morons. That's funny. Why do you use that term, Bruce? Well, it's because if you read most blogs, isn't that the, for some reason, the term that's used most often to describe oppositions, particularly people that aren't giving a lot of thought to their presentation on the internet, but... These morons think this, these morons think that. You'd like to be rid of those people in one swoop. And here's the issue. That will never happen. Well, it actually has happened, though. Maybe a couple of times. You could say that that Federalist Hartford Convention was close to one of those times. Although, As I explained, some of the Republicans, it's known, started to take on Federalist ideas. So it almost really didn't happen here. Here's a great quote from uh, Jefferson, and he's writing to uh, one of his friends, a judge in Virginia. What do you think of the state of the parties at this time? The opinion prevails that there are no longer any distinctions. The Republicans and Federalists are completely amalgamated, but it is not so. The amalgamation is of name only, not of principle. And indeed, all calls themselves by the name of Republicans because that of Federalists was extinguished in the Battle of New Orleans. But the truth is that finding monarchy is a desperate wish. They rally to the point that they think is next best, a complete consolidation of our government and the removal of states. Jefferson was somebody who engaged in a lot of political philosophy and was knowledgeable about these things, and so you see, kind of of the type, that there was never going to be a full win. You could just kind of keep people out. In every free and deliberative society, there must be, from the nature of man, be opposite parties and violent dissensions and discords, and one of these, for the most part, must prevail over the other for a longer or shorter time. Parties are natural. That he writes in 1793, well before his writing to the Virginia judge. The elimination of one point of view in politics in American life kind of happened then, but not really. Not even Jefferson thinks so, and many thought. There are some writers that started to criticize President Madison, not so much the the actual politicians in in the Republican Party, but writers outside, that uh, he was becoming a quasi- Federalist, an apostate to the cause. There is another time where you could say this happened, but there's a big catch. January 1861, Jefferson Davis of Mississippi appeals to senators to allow states out of the Union peacefully. And the 21st of that month, Davis and four other senators from the now-seceded states of Florida and Alabama and Mississippi leave. Being a senator is a pretty important and distinguished job. And actually, 1859, they just built a huge new chamber for the Senate with really nice windows in the top so a lot of light gets in. This is the Senate chamber that they use today. They're walking out on a lot in these jobs. Nonetheless, for Clement clay Benjamin Fitzpatrick of Alabama, David Uly, Stephen Mallory of Florida. They give speeches, and they are applauded, as Davis and these senators bid adieu. The Senate had not been confronted with this, senators leaving in bulk like this. So what do they do? Well, initially, they just decide to leave the seats vacant. Maybe they'll come back. Of course... This changes. In July 1861, war is raging between two sides of the country, and the Senate expels all of the members from the now Confederate states. But this presents an interesting scenario which really hasn't happened before or since in American politics. And that is what you have left in a Congress when one side in a debate, one ideology in American politics, just simply leads. And there's a removal of all the obstacles, as some might see it. Well, this Congress in 1861, 1862, 1863, Lincoln is president. You've got a very supportive speaker initially, Galusha Groh. They start passing legislation. And it's not all related to the war. The war is not the only thing that goes on in the 1860s. The dispense funds for a national railroad to be built, passed the Homestead Act, to promote settlement to the West. They pass a land-grant college act. This is interesting. It's kind of like a higher education bill of their day. It hands out what the government can hand out. Land. 30,000 acres to a college, mostly for agricultural colleges, to each member of Congress. Senator Justin Morrill of Maryland sponsors it, and Morrill Hall in College Park, Maryland, which was one of these land-grant colleges, still stands today. There's many colleges. I mean, uh, MIT, the original MIT is part of this program. So is Cornell in New York. Iowa State, its science and technology college today was originally one of these land-grant colleges, the first one to apply to the funds in 1862. During the Jacksonian period, the Whigs and the Democrats had argued over the Bank of the United States. Now, with Republicans completely in power in Congress, they pass a National Banking Act, which is the culmination, really, of the Whigs' policy that they never got to implement. Lincoln, who as a Whig supported the bank policy of Whigs during the Jacksonian era, signs it into law. It provides that the United States as a nation can now charter banks, Banks aren't previously were just at the state level. It's not a return to having one consolidated bank of the United States in Philadelphia, but it is a device to allow many national banks out there regulated by the federal government, chartered by the federal government. And it also adds something important the regulation of national currency and a single banknote that will come to be the dollar of today. This works well to the effect, by 1865, there's 1,500 national banks across the nation. 800 of them were converted state banks, and the rest are new. Congress even then, to try to diminish some of the state notes that are floating out, puts an additional tax on state bank notes, trying to encourage the national system. Congress also gets active in the territories west. They create Nevada Territory, Utah Territory, Colorado Territory, Dakota Territory, Arizona Territory. All these created by the Congress that sat after the Southern members left. They could do this with very little opposition. There's just a catch. They were going to have to fight a war. And if they didn't win that war, there might be some battles challenging what they were doing with territories out West. But you don't often get that lucky in American politics just to have your opposition walk out of the body that makes the decisions. For a few years there, it was like the political opposition vanished and all those old bank debates, the Western land debates, they could just run wild. The opponents had walked out. Now, there would come to be opposition, even in the Congress that now was made up just of Northern and border states. In a lot of the border states, They're not electing Republicans to Congress. They're electing Union Democrats or Democrats or something like this, conservative party members who are going to have a very different interpretation of the war and national legislation than the Lincoln administration does. But Lincoln's able to keep a majority through his presidency. As a result of the Civil War, the GOP party gets its name, the Grand Old Party, because, for one of the reasons, it's holding the presidency For 20 years after the war, now the grip on the Congress is weaker. By 1874, they lose the House. The Democrats take the Speakership. They'll go back and forth between Democrats and Republicans throughout the Gilded Age in terms of control of the House of Representatives. But in the White House, the strong effect of the Civil War is that for 72 years, there's only one Democratic president between the years of 1861 and 1930. That's, of course, Grover Cleveland. The rest, Grant Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Harrison McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, all members of Lincoln's party. But that's after a war where the majority of Democratic Southern senators and congressmen walked out of the body. Hard thing to recover from. Now, you can also look at periods like the Great Depression. And FDR, after 1933, had his run of legislation with all of these new, something like 90 new members. And for the first few years, it's little opposition, but there's immediately some conservative qualms about the spending. And this turns into outright opposition by the time you're getting to 1938. So it's a very short period. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. At least these days, when an incumbent president is defeated, he gets to go home in style on Air Force One. Well, it's not exactly Air Force One, because at some point during the flight, Air Force One signals the tower that it is changing to a regular code. It is no longer the plane flying the elected president. But it's still a well-equipped and comfortable airplane taking the incumbent back to where they came from. But in 1801... The president goes home in a coach, and so all that John Adams had to look forward to when he left the executive mansion and set back off to Quincy, Massachusetts, was a bumpy ride. Letters to friends reveal bitterness, heartbrokenness about that election of 1800, especially aimed at his own ostensible friends, his own ostensible party. No party, he writes to a friend, has ever knew itself so little. He attacked the small groups of foreign liars and newspaper printers that had reduced a great nation as he saw it. He felt as president, he had always tried to keep balance, but just felt stymied by events, by his own political party, and of course, his opponents. Thus, Adams would not ride in a little coach with the new President Thomas Jefferson and he was being sworn in, nor would he shake his hand, nor would he watch the President be sworn in from a distance even. Adams leaves six hours early, before light. He has a long way to go. There's a little note left in the executive mansion for Jefferson. He does wish him well, and then says there's a few horses that he's leaving in the executive mansion so that Jefferson does not have to buy them. It's their last communication for 12 years, and he sets home on his journey. Jefferson now walks in with the militia contingent to the Capitol, takes the oath proudly, he strikes a conciliatory tone, partially blamed all the excited partisan fighting on the ways of a free people, and he blames them on the Europeans. We are all Republicans, he says. We are all Federalists. As he tries to calm down fears that he's a Republican, so he's going to let the rabble run everything and the country is going to be ruined, he says, This is the strongest government on earth. While he's taking the presidency, his allies have also won a huge majority in the House and a majority of two in the Senate. He welcomes this chance to put the argo of our nation on a Republican tack. He's even hopeful that maybe he can reduce the two parties to one. The greatest good we can do in our country is to heal its party divisions and make them one people, he tells John Dickinson. It's the Republican Revolution of 1800, Jefferson would say later. But witnessing this scene, it would be hard to imagine that just three years before everything was exactly the reverse. Congressional elections We're spread out then, but for a full year. First one in New York in April 1798. The last one in Tennessee in March 1799. Federalists were doing quite well. Anger over France. Anger of French treatment of our diplomats. First, they take Charles Pickering, who's very popular in the South. He's sent home by the new directory government in France. France says that they can seize our ships that are in its ports. And there's 12 such ships that they act on. Then there's the XYZ affair, and this has a funny name, and it's it's basically where diplomats that were sent by Adams were told that they had to pay money if they wanted to talk to the directory. This is not how nations are treated. This is seen as a a dishonor to America. The reason it's called the XYZ affair is because when it's first stated what happened with the mission, Jeffersonian Republicans are supporters of France. They tell the Adams administration, produce some kind of proof of this. So the document's released, but it's a diplomatic document. So instead of mentioning the minister's names, it's just X, Y, and Z. Becomes the XYZ affair. People are outraged. And you notice support for Adams and his administration as we face a possible war with France, or this thing heads to hopefully some kind of diplomatic resolution, but perhaps a war, perhaps we're going to have trouble on our Western front, perhaps we're going to have trouble with our ships. He's getting support in places where he got no electoral votes for in a 1796 presidential election, the South. Abigail Adams writes about the addresses that are coming into the president from all over the country. Sure, in New England, these kind of things are expected, stick it to France. But in southern towns, in Virginia, North Carolina, the president's foreign policy is getting accolades. This is a place where John Adams wrote, you know, about South Carolina, that he had only enemies and cold friends. And now from the Shenandoah from Alexandria, Norfolk, Raleigh, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Fayetteville, North Carolina. There are people getting together in groups and then having an address and sending that address to the president. This is the way you did it back then. George Washington in retirement is excited. All the uppermost populous and hardy yeomanry of the state have come as one, coming forward with strong addresses to the executive all this support is now reflected in the elections that are going to occur between 1798 and 1799. Federalists gained two seats in Virginia, three in North Carolina, two in South Carolina, and two in Georgia, where Federalists weren't competitive at all. And there was a political machine that they had to beat of some significance there. The House is now 60 to 46 in favor of friends of the government and against opposition. A significant Federalist Theodore Sedgwick takes over as Speaker, and in the Senate, a seat is also gained. Vice President Jefferson at this time is despondent in a letter to his friend Thomas Mann Randolph. We now expect to lose every question which shall be proposed. The war men have been indefatigable. Yet, Despite writing this letter, Jefferson would be elected president of the United States in three years. What happened? Well, Federalists overstepped and had too much enthusiasm about what may have been a one-issue boost in their popularity. They acted quickly, though, on the congressional majority that they got. A bill to suspend commerce with France, the creation of an army of 20,000 men, they'd only actually get 10, and an increase in the Navy. The measures have broad support when Adams puts uh, Washington in charge of the command of army forces, kind of a message to France, don't mess with us. A lot of support for it. He does send a delegation, a new delegation of ministers to France, There's support for this kind of moderate policy that he's got. But there's another measure that Federalists pass and John Adams signs. And this is the Alien and Sedition Acts. There are several acts. It starts to erode the support for this new political sport for the friends of the Adams government and the Federalists. They involve several things, uh, but one of them is to increase the amount of time that someone needs here to become a citizen instead of five years, 14 years. They're worried about, there's many French in Philadelphia and in other places, and some of them, though, they might have predated the revolution in coming here, they're supportive of the French government. There's also Albert Gallatin, who's a significant Republican and friend of Madison and friend of Jefferson, and he's a Swiss immigrant and... That's somebody that they're targeting. He's a leader in the House, a leader of the opposition. And there's a number of newspaper printers that they're going to target with these sedition acts. They're so drastic, they do start getting some warnings from Federalist friends like, hey, this might be going a little far. John Marshall, who's an ardent Virginia Federalist, later would become Supreme Court chief. He chooses to question them publicly. North Carolina legislature now where Adams had been getting all these addresses supporting him. Now they vote to condemn the act. And the Virginia and Kentucky legislators, acting on a uh, statement that was created by Jefferson and Madison, vote to declare the Alien and Sedition Acts void, to nullify them. Things are getting pretty bitter. And there's also a bitter division among Federalists between supporters of Admiral Alexander Hamilton and those of President Adams. Hamilton wants war with France, a strong army. He wants to use the army to erode political opposition. And now you're getting action. You know, it's one thing to pass the legislation, Alien and Sedition Act. Now you're starting to get some action. Editors being locked up. William Durrell, a Republican printer, New York State, critical of Adams, indicted. Benjamin Franklin Back, publisher of the Aurora in Philadelphia, is arrested. William Duane, starts taking over for Back's paper and starts editing it. He's also indicted. Thomas Adams of the Boston Independent Chronicle is arrested. Matthew Lyon for saying that Adams was grasping for power. That earned him a $1,000 fine for sedition against the president and the federal government. There's debates about this. Certainly, Adams always felt, we have writings from him and Abigail, that some of the Printing and attacking the government that was going on was so severe that it might upset the entire government. And this was a nation in its early founding that was somewhat fragile. But to modern ears, those alien and sedition acts just are overstepped. And and that was used to engender support for the Republicans in eighteen hundred and for the candidacy of Jefferson. But he benefited strongly from fighting within the Federalist rank. In fact, it's Probably clear that absent that, Adams may have had a good chance. You know now it's four years from the Federalist surge of 1798 until Jefferson is in the White House. And the country has shifted between two very different ideologies and seemed at those different times very enthusiastic about each. But is this some anachronism that one could say only happened at this time? You know, wouldn't happen in modern times. We're not like that anymore. Look at 2008, a large victory, 53% for the president, the highest for Democrats since LBJ. There's lots of blue on that electoral map. Takes North Carolina, Indiana, Nevada, Florida, which was a battleground in 2000, falls easily, not even in contention during that election, really. American voters seem to be showing enthusiasm for a Democratic president and his ideas, and among his many promises, it's extremely clear. President Obama says, I'm going to bring forward a health care reform program. I'm going to provide universal care for uninsured Americans. Stated many times, especially when you consider that there was a highly televised primary, where there was a highly televised primary that occurs before the election, then the general election with several debates, he's going to institute a health care program. He does so in 2010, and then... In the 2010 midterm elections, American voters seemed to show enthusiasm for that program to be dismantled. Republicans take the House in a historically bad midterm. You know, drain the politics out of this and what side you're on. And it's just crazy from a policy perspective. It's like you're driving a car and you want it to go in forward and then in reverse and then in forward and then in reverse. You said you want to do this. Now you want to do that. Two years later, if I was running a company and I told my... uh, shareholders, that we should raise prices, that's going to be my position. And then two years later, came back and said, we really need to low prices, lower prices, that's going to be my plan. I think they might turn and say, well, yeah, we'll lower the prices, and also, you're fired. But we can't fire ourselves, and so we are stuck with our inconsistent ideas and behavior in elections. But in a sense, this is why politics is not a game with one clear winner. The connection to voters is direct. They have a responsibility and a role in the result. A team doesn't really win in American politics, though the appearance of an election on one day, with one winner and a loser, makes that easy to think, since a numeric score is applied to those specific elections, 57% of the vote, etc. The reality is, a 57% vote might mean something like, Well, 20% really like Candidate X, Uh, another 20 voted for party reasons, 5 like his tie, 2 liked his uh, foreign policy ideas, 15% were scared by the other guy, but actually don't agree with Candidate X. Polls can start to suss out some of those little distinctions that are occurring within a vote, as can letters to politicians or other protests that occur or other forms of expression, but... The point is this. Each politician in office consists, is made up, of the atoms of somebody voting for them, unless it is no longer a republic. We shouldn't assume with elections that there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for one idea for another unless we can demonstrate that the electoral result can be replicated over a series of years. I mean, for those with a win-loss perspective, looking for a clear winner, recent times really aren't that good. I mean, we go back 20 years. Let's look at this. 1994, Republicans win a huge midterm. 1996, Democrats win a huge presidential race. 1998, slight win for Democrats in the House midterms. 2000, slight win for the GOP in the presidency. 2002, win for the GOP in the midterms. 2004, close, but a win for the GOP in the presidency. 2006, Win for Democrats in the midterm. Take back the House and the Senate. 2008, huge presidential win for the Democrats. 2010, huge GOP win in the House. 2012, win for the Democrats in the presidential race. 2014, we don't know yet, but there's much talk, historically indicated to be bad for the president's party. Back, forth, no clear, consistent winner That's 20 years. And if you're a visitor from a foreign country, not partial to one side or the other, which always makes it hard to discuss these topics, but if you put yourself in those shoes, I think the only conclusion is American politics sees a lot of back and forth. It seemed like a pretty good idea at the time. For campaign manager Susan Estridge, It seemed like the perfect opportunity to take her candidate, Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts, and to take his disadvantage that he was having trouble showing off his foreign policy prowess and to make that an advantage. Dukakis wasn't getting a lot of accolades for his foreign policy statements, but he was trying to make them. I mean, this is in the wake of Gorbachev taking power in Russia, and there's starting to be improved relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. You're not going to get to be the president if you can't show that you have some foreign policy ability, command over the nation's military forces that you're going to need to take on day one. Ronald Reagan is president at this time and he makes fun of Dukakis that now that he's, that he had been against uh, aid to the Contras, that he had been for some military cuts and now he wanted a strong defense and a strong stance. And he said, uh, that was the biggest switch since Dustin Hoffman played Tootsie. Some voters feel he's weak compared to the sitting vice president. Political campaigns are not permitted to go to the army bases. So the traditional shot, you know, Dukakis with all the troops behind him, that was out. So Estridge sent Dukakis to a general dynamics plant where they were going to tour the military facilities. Then with the cameras rolling, there's a great opportunity for some free news coverage. He gets a ride in an Abrams tank and appears, of course, looking out the top. He's not driving the tank, but it almost looks like he is. Now, if you were there at that plant, at that point, in in the Dukakis campaign, it really was a great day. Everyone had a great time, of course, but more than that, it sort of looked good. And the few instances of news coverage, you know, on the nightly news uh, actually seemed positive. But the reaction changed over the hours and days, and and, and, the perception was that Governor Dukakis looked foolish riding around on a tank so much. And Roger Ailes, who's running the Bush campaign, said that he was having trouble defining how he wanted to attack Dukakis's foreign policy. Because uh, like Kennedy had done in nineteen sixty, Dukakis was trying to outflank the Republicans by making some straught statements about foreign policy. No throwing them off a bit. But he said with that tank appearance, Dukakis did it for himself and GOP would use that footage, they would use the image of their opponent riding around in the tank that was intended to help him, they'd use it in their ads to make the candidate look foolish. For Madeleine Albright, uh, former Secretary of State and then the Foreign Policy Advisor for the Dukakis campaign, the real problem was the Governor Dukakis war an outside communications helmet on his head, one that had these two boxes, you know, protruding from them, the radio devices. Some of the staff said, you know, Governor, don't wear the helmet. The official policy was that if you rode in the tank, you felt you wore the helmet for safety reasons. It's kind of like, uh, says a lot about Dukakis' personality there. Albright felt that if the helmet wasn't worn, it, it, the image would have been fine. He just looked silly with this oversized helmet on his head. The defeat, after at one point Dukakis was 20 points ahead in the polls, was a depressing one for Democrats in 1988. And for a reason, they had lost three presidential elections in a row. And the losses were bad. I mean, Dukakis won 11 states, Mondale won, Carter three, and, you know, they all won the District of Columbia. It seemed to most that as a national party, the Democratic Party was finished in the late 1980s. Sure, they held the Congress, but they were the mommy party. They couldn't run the government and the things that needed to be run. They couldn't earn the presidency. Because after all, the one four years in the White House that they had at that time, Carter, his performance was not judged, especially at this time, as being very good. So it didn't look at all good for Democrats. Clinton wins in 1992. He doesn't ride in a tank. And changes a lot of this perception. And now, if you look at it now that you've had two terms of Clinton, two terms of Obama, we have a different perspective in 2014, I would say, than they had in 1988. And it would be odd to see a newspaper column right now where someone wrote that the Democrats are doomed as a national party and can't win the White House. In fact, you're seeing a little bit of the opposite, that perhaps the GOP is shut out of the White House. And we should perhaps look at 1988 to analyze that. No, I mean, if you take the past fifty years now, so since nineteen sixty four, you've got uh, LBJ for four years, Nixon for eight, Carter four, Reagan eight, Bush Senior for four, Clinton for eight, Bush for eight, Obama for six. But it will become eight by twenty sixteen. So if you look at that, it's basically twenty eight years to the presidency for the GOP and twenty four for the Democrats. Not a huge difference. Both parties very competitive there then as now, you're going to hear about the death of parties. But a death of parties, it can happen in a parliamentary democracy, although really you're going to find you have the same opponents. They're morphing into something else. And of course, it could happen at a dictatorship, but it's not likely in a two-party republic, especially not likely in American divided government. Hearing talk now, uh, you are hearing some talk, the Democrats now have a lock on the Electoral College of Demographics and That was definitely the talk about the GOP up until 1992. There was talk, you know, Democrats couldn't win California until Clinton did. So I think Democrats may have some favorable trends that will probably apply to 2016, but I wouldn't go too much farther after that. And, you know, they're likely to get a bruising in 2014. Thomas Jefferson. Men of energy and character must have enemies because there are two sides to every question. And taking one with decision and acting on it with effect, those who take the other will, of course, be hostile in proportion as they feel in effect. Thomas Jefferson. Well, Tiege is right. There will be parties. It's only in a football game, a soccer match, a battle, where we should really talk about winning. It's only where you can stop the clock or in a banana republic where domination of politics can be held by one small faction. And that domination will be total. In a democracy, a real republic such as ours, one must stop considering politics within the framework of removing all the opposition from the field and winning. Politics is not football. There is no final score. The clock never stops. And the consequences involve the audience. There are periods of time where it seems that one party has got the edge. But these are minuscule compared to an adult's lifetime, on average. A person who turned 21 in 1932 would be 41 before they witnessed a Republican president again. But what does it matter? When judged by an adult lifetime, American periods of party domination like that are not that long at all. So what? That 41-year-old, if he lived to 71, would have seen a much more broad picture in terms of party control of the presidency. The rest of his time on Earth, that older man would have seen a majority Republican White House. And he would have lived to see Ronald Reagan, just as he had entered politics seeing Franklin Roosevelt as president. What's the message here though, Bruce. It's like, you know, you've given me a lot, especially with all these series of lies my talking heads have told me. And this one is, is probably the more controversial of all of them. Because it, it's got to be true that one side wins in politics. Yes, in certain issues. Yes, in any given election, there are winners. But overall, it's probably better to see it as a process and to let this type of of thinking affect how you go about your politics. Maybe you should look at issues more than candidates. Maybe you should consider many other positions in a debate. Maybe you should think about politics always in terms of that there is another person there and you won't go through that person ever. You'll only engage them and hopefully persuade them. What do we do with this information? Am I saying just give up on politics? It doesn't matter. Not at all. I am not advocating that anyone become a political hermit. Do I say stop donating? Stop voting? No, no, and no. But I do think you could approach politics in a different way. On this show, I'm never a person of ethics telling everyone what to do. Just encouraging to perhaps look at things in a different way and then go about the actions as you will. For more of this, uh, there's an article that I really liked by a person from uh, the Hawaii Institute for Centrist Politics, Uh, very interesting, his name is Michael Okahara, and in his article How to Win a Political Argument by Losing, he writes this, We've all been in the position of arguing with a friend over a contentious political issue. Your thought process was probably straightforward enough. Make the most forceful, incontrovertible arguments early and often. In the face of the evidence, your opponent will have no choice but to concede. Now think back for a second. How many of these kinds of arguments have ever actually ended with one side giving up completely? The proceedings play out much the same way as an argument between friends, Republicans and Democrats at the highest levels, lay out their most compelling arguments, are flabbergasted when the other side refuses to budge, decline to negotiate towards a mutual agreement, and retrench in their two opinions. Governing done! They each declare themselves the winner and pat themselves on the back. Meanwhile, we as voters can demand more from our politicians. And instead of voting based on principle stands and pithy rhetorics, we need to hold our legislators responsible for the actual legislative record. For instance, let's say I'm opposed to a new tax up for a vote. I don't want my representative to promise to fight against it, make an impassioned speech, and simply lose the vote. I want to know that my representative's being realist and, and pragmatist negotiated with the other side and won the very lowest level of taxation that could be expected given the circumstances. This is where what I really like about Akuhara's article, though. He relates it to the film Moneyball. Billy Bean, you know, the general manager of the Oakland A's in that movie Moneyball, is faced with a revelation that he, along with everybody else in baseball, has been getting things wrong. They've been building teams in antiquated fashion. They've been paying money for good players when they should be looking at the stats and paying money for home runs. He was, he says, buying and selling and trading players when he should have been buying and selling and trading the wins those players produce. A similar myopia, Akohara writes, affects political discourse in this country. We are all trying to win debates. We're all trying to see our team win. And we should be trying to win legislation, so. And change your approach to politics based on the reality that absence, you know, another civil war, some disaster like that, which has a lot of other consequences that you probably won't like, your side isn't going to win. No matter how many times your talking head says it or infers it. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Got a little archive for you. 1888. You get the whole archive. 100 hours or so of podcasts going back all the way to 2006 and a lot of political issues. If you do like the program, Please tell someone about it. My Twitter is MyHist, at MyHist. Love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent...